you would turn to the book of Mark, chapter 9, verse 30. Mark, chapter 9, verse 30. We've been walking through a series for the last couple of weeks, walking through the book of Mark, kind of breaking it up into themes. And these next several chapters of the book of Mark really kind of resonate around one theme, and that is Jesus. He is more than a Savior. Jesus, he is more than a Savior. And so for some of our sensibilities, that may seem sacrilegious to think of Jesus as anything other than a Savior. Um, But hopefully you will see through the Word of God that he is more. And so if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible this morning, simply lift your hand up and one of our ushers will put a Bible in your hand. We want you to have the Word of God. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is yours to keep. Um, That is our gift to you. That is our gift to you. So if you don't have a Bible, please take that home with you. Write your name in it. It is yours. So what do I mean by Jesus is more than a savior? Here's what I mean. Jesus not only gives us new life, he shows us how we are to live in this new life. He is not just our savior. He is our Lord. He is our example. He's the one who goes before us, not so that we can just cheer him on, but so that we can take up our cross and follow him. And in today's passage, I want to talk about something that is probably no more clearly opposite of what the world and our culture teaches us than what the scriptures say, and that is the subject of greatness. Greatness. What does it mean to be great? Now, the great philosopher and poet Kanye West, um, (laughs) he says that his one regret in life, his one regret in life, now, one regret in life. (laughs) My list for him would be a little longer. My one, he said his one regret is that he would never be able to see himself live in concert. (laughs) It's a true story. You see, for him, greatness is is art on display, and who's better than me? And so if I was going to go to a concert, who would I want to see other than me? And so it may sound funny, but he's just the most honest one of them all. He's defining greatness by fame and accolades. And I know we are good Christian folks in here by and large, and so you say, no, that's not how I would define greatness. But look at how you teach greatness maybe to your children. Is greatness college degrees, the good job, the 2.5 kids? Is it the stuff of life? Maybe for your own ambition, what what defines greatness to you? Is it climbing up the metaphorical ladder, being in charge of more people, having a bigger budget, being the perfect parent. How do you define greatness? Jesus, in this passage, is going to not just define greatness. He's going to make it core to not only who he is, but all of his commands for us. All of the commands of the scriptures can be summed up in a few ways, and one of the ways that we can look at all the commands of Christianity is around this idea of greatness. Matthew chapter 9, verses 30 through, I'm just going to read the first two verses, and we're going to walk slowly all the way down to the end of the chapter. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling him, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later, but they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask. Let me set this up. 
Jesus had been teaching, and now he's been teaching publicly for most of his ministry. He's been confronting Pharisees. He's been preaching to thousands of people. He's been doing miracles and signs and wonders. But for the next several passages here, Jesus is going to do something a little different. He's actually going to pull his disciples to the side and teach them in private. And so this is the first of many of those lessons where he calls his disciples away from the crowds and begins to teach them individually. And they begin to do that in Galilee. And he said something that seems really clear to us, but seems to perplex the disciples. In verse 31, Jesus said, the Son of Man, his kind of way that he's talked about himself, he calls himself the Son of Man, is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. Now, does that seem ambiguous to anybody about what Jesus just said? But for some reason, verse 32, they said that they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, this is the most important part of the passage here, y'all. Verse 31 is critical to understanding the mission of Jesus. You're going to miss Jesus entirely unless you understand what he's saying in verse 31. You're going to miss this passage and this lesson and this truth completely if you miss what's happening in verse 32. So verse 31, he says, I'm going to die. After three days later, I'm going to come back to life. Seems pretty straightforward, yet the disciples don't get it. How does that happen? Well, before we pick on the disciples a little too harshly, imagine if your friend called you one day and says, hey, man, it's football season. And you're like, yes, it is. I'm excited. He said, hey, man, did you see the game last night? And you said, no, I didn't see it. What happened? I was like, man, one of the wings did a cross kick to the forward, and the forward headbutted it in, won it at the last second. You'd be looking at them like you're looking at me now. Like, that's, that's not how football is played. Until you realize, oh, you're talking about football, football. You're talking about soccer. So in soccer, they do cross kicks, and they headbutt the ball. You don't do that in football. If the ball hits you on the head, you have done something wrong in football. So you see how language that seems to be really clear, if we're not oriented rightly, we will miss what they're saying. If you say football, I'm thinking American football. And so your explanation of a really straightforward move in soccer is going to seem really confusing to me. And so Jesus, who in my mind, I'm a disciple, I've been following Jesus, and the reason I'm following Jesus is he claims to be the Messiah and I believe him. Now my understanding of the Messiah is we've been living under Roman rule for far too long. And God promised that one day he will make us a great nation again. And so this is the guy who's going to free us from Roman oppression. This is the guy who's going to give us our own nation. He's the guy who's going to free us from the bonds of oppression. And so when Jesus says he's going to die, that doesn't seem like a hero's tale, does it? We're used to montage victories, right? Remember the Rocky movies? The guy gets beaten, but then there's like this 30-second montage of him training and, and punching frozen meat. Then all of a sudden, he comes back 30 pounds heavier, lean muscle, and wins. We're used to that kind of triumphalism in our Christianity where you may be down but not out. But Jesus is talking about dying and coming back to life and nothing about a violent overthrow of Roman oppression, nothing about a new political state, nothing about the things that I think he should be talking about. And so I'm confused. You see, the mission of Jesus, y'all, is right here in verse 31. They will kill him. He is killed, but he will rise three days later. Jesus came to die, y'all. He didn't come just to die, but he did come to die. Now the question is why? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, because of us and our sins. Let me make it clear from the very beginning this good news that you've heard so much about hopefully already this morning. You see, we are broken people. 
the violence that we see in the news this week isn't just out there. It is in us. We see glimpses of it when someone cuts us off. We see glimpses of it when our kids talk disrespectfully. We see glimpses of it when somebody doesn't treat us the way we should be. We see glimpses of the rage and the anger and the sin that's in all of us. And so even if we can pull it all together, even if we're always polite and always kind, God doesn't just see what we do. He sees who we are. He sees the thoughts that we would never share with anyone. He sees the desires in our hearts that we know not to act on. He sees all of that, and he says, I'm a holy and just God, and I must punish wickedness. I must punish sin. But the problem is the punishment can never fit the crime. We have sinned against a holy, eternal God. What should be the punishment for that? If out in the parking lot you disagreed with something I said and you pushed me down on the ground, there might be one or two people who say something about it, but you're probably not going to get in a whole lot of trouble. If you were to push down a foreign ambassador or the president of the United States or a king in that time, what would be the punishment? The exact same crime against done against someone who is in authority and power. You see, it's not just our sins that condemn us. It's who we're sinning against that condemn us. That's why gossip is just as damnable as murder. Because it's not just the sin that God has in view. It's who we're sinning against. Whose law are we breaking? God's law. And so sinning against an eternal God would warrant at least an eternal punishment. And yet none of us, none of us can pay that price. And so what's the only way to make us right before God? A God who must be just because he says, I am just. A God who must punish sin because to not punish sin would be unfair and unjust. The only way God and man can be made right, reconciled to one another, is someone has to take the place. And not just anyone has to take the place. But someone whose life is worth more than all the sins of all the world that you're going to commit yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Whose life is worth that much? Not mine, not yours. God's life is, though. And so God wraps himself in human flesh, comes as a man to take man's place for man's sins. And so I have to die because apart from my death, we cannot be made right with God. And that is why the whole reformer used to say we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, because your works can never add anything to what Jesus has done because he's enough. That's why we say it on Sundays every week that don't get yourself right before you come to God. Come to God and he will get you right. You've tried to get yourself right. You've tried to live the right life. That is not what God is asking for. He's accomplished that. He's the only one that's ever earned salvation and he gives it freely to those who put their faith in him. So let it be made clear that verse 31 is the heart and the central truth of Jesus' message. I came to die but not to stay dead, because sin cannot hold me. So why then would the disciples be confused? Because if we're honest, this is not the first time Jesus said this. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jake preached a message asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Jesus began to unpack his purpose again there. And what was the response? Does anyone remember? Peter, the spokesman for the group, rises up and says, surely not, God. No, I mean, that's, you, you're, the, you're the Savior, you're the Messiah. And Jesus' response is right to the heart, Satan, get behind me. 
And so we see every time in the book of Mark, this happens three times, once in Matthew, Mark chapter 8, again in Mark chapter 9, which we're going to look at today, and again in Mark chapter 10, three times in the book of Mark, Jesus is going to say who he is and what he came to do, and the disciples are going to respond the exact same way. No. No, because their understanding of greatest is wrong, and Mark's going to make this clear in the next passage. So Jesus' mission is to come and die. The disciples miss it because they disagree with Jesus' method. Verse 33, let me connect these passages together. It says, they came to Capernaum, the disciples, they were traveling again. When he was in the house, he asked them, talking about Jesus, what were you arguing about on the way? So they were on a walk. Remember, there's no Uber, there's no cars, there's no plane. So to get from one place to another, you have to walk. And walking provides the opportunity for conversation. So they were talking about something on the way. Verse 34, but they were silent. Because on the way, they had been arguing about with one another about who was the greatest. Y'all, catch what just happened. Now, this, now, Mark doesn't always write in chronological order, but he, he pairs things together thematically to get us to see the point. Jesus had pronounced that I am coming to die because through my death and resurrection, people will be saved, and I will announce that I am the Son of God, the Messiah. And their reaction to that on their way to the next lesson is, hey, y'all, who do you think is going to sit on the biggest throne? Hey, y'all, who's going to sit closest to Jesus? Hey, y'all, who's going to have more territory to rule? Who's going to have the biggest title and the biggest name? They didn't get it, y'all. But they knew they didn't get it because Jesus asked the question. You ever catch someone doing something they're not supposed to do, especially children will oftentimes do this? Even something that you haven't explicitly told them not to do, the moment you watch them doing it, they slow down. It's like a slow motion, like, you going to stop me? If not, I'm going to keep going. I feel, like I, I feel like I should stop, but I'm going to keep going. There's this instant conviction by being exposed, and Jesus exposed them by asking the question, hey, y'all, what were y'all talking about? And immediately they knew they were wrong. How did I know that? Because they were silent. They were silent because they've been arguing about who is the greatest. And so Jesus takes the posture of a teacher in verse 35. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as in this way in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Now, what's Jesus doing? And why is there random children laying around? A lot of questions in this passage, so I'm going to unpack them. Seems seems odd that there's just a child ready for a prop in this story. Um, but that answer is actually related to the point of the story because we have kind of a, uh, a romanticized view of children in our culture. But let's transport our minds and our imaginations back to ancient Near East, Palestine, Israel, Jerusalem. You had a high demand for labor and you had high infant mortality rates. They didn't view children the way we view them as precious and vulnerable. They viewed them as not as useful as they will be one day. They viewed them as kind of extras. The only importance to a child was really who his father was. And so children were seen as weak and vulnerable, and we need strong and protectors. And so children, until they grow up to be men or women, they really have no purpose and no value. Hence, children laying around so that Jesus could use them as an object lesson, because they really didn't matter that much in this society. In most of the world, they really didn't have any status, any protected status. There were no child labor laws. It was children who were 
If they, if they live long enough to become adults, then they're important. Then they matter. And so what was Jesus saying? Now, this is the central truth that the method to achieve greatness is the exact opposite of what the world says. Did you see it? If anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. He took a child and had him stand among them. So most people think that this means that we must be like children. That's another passage, Matthew 13. That's another passage. This is actually not saying that we should be like children. It's saying that we should welcome and honor children as if their father was actually Jesus. Anyone who welcomes them in my name, in my authority, welcoming them on my behalf, welcomes me. So he's saying, take the weak, the vulnerable, the outcast, those who, don't, who can't do anything for you, and receive them as if they were my own children. Receive them in my name. You know, you can tell how you treat people by the people that you treat that can't do anything for you. So you think you're doing okay. We think we're doing an okay job because we treat our boss and our peers and, you know, we're nice to the people who we're accountable to. We're nice to the people who can do something for us. We're nice to the people whose opinions matter. But how do you treat the waiter at the restaurant? How do you treat the custodian cleaning your building? How do you treat the immigrant and the foreigner and the sojourner? How do you treat the felon? You see, God is getting to the heart. He's like, don't look at how you treat the best how men count best. Look at how you treat the least, and therein lies how you are treating me. Therein lies how you are receiving me. See, if you want to be first, you got to be last. So that really means those who are last now will be first later. And that's not how the world has trained us. That's not how we've been taught to engage the world. We've been taught to network, right? Make your circle as connected as possible. Go to the church that has the richest amount of people as possible. Find the, the social club that, that hangs out that can advance your career the best. We've been taught to only really care about the people who can do something for us. And the moment we find out that they are unwilling or unable to help us, they go to the back of the line. Do you see how this thinking has infected us? We love Jesus, right? You're here on a Sunday morning. You could be sleeping. You could be playing golf. You could be doing anything. But you're, you're here because you love the Lord. At least someone invited you to hear about the love of the Lord. And yet we still struggle with loving people well, do we? We find a reason why everyone deserves what they got. We find a reason to make even the victims guilty of their own state. And we don't realize that it's not about who's right or wrong. It's not about who's innocent or guilty. It's about that who is their creator. Who made them? When it comes to treating people the way they should be treated, that's all that matters. It's who made them. And if you believe that God is the creator of heaven and earth, you mean that God is the creator of human beings? If you don't believe that we crawled out of a swamp of a primordial stew, if you believe that God had his hand in creation, then that should show up in how you treat other people. Somebody should say amen. Amen. And so those who welcome the weak, the vulnerable, the useless, the children, he says, welcomes me. And so the method of greatness is becoming last and least. By humbling yourself to see others who are beneath you, according to the world standards, as higher than you, according to God's standards. To see that custodian, to see that foreigner, to see that person who's despised by the world as actually more important than you are. That's what it means to make yourself the least. If you are at the bottom, who is beneath you? 
Nobody. If you make yourself servant of all, who is your servant? Nobody. I had a pastor um, friend once say, if you want to find out if someone has a servant heart, treat them like a servant. Say, I want to serve, but I don't want to be treated like a servant. I want to help, but I don't want you to treat me like the help. I want you to treat me as the white knight savior who's swooping in to serve in this ministry, who's swooping in to, to bail you out of a jam, who's swooping in to do you a favor. I want you to treat me like a servant. And yet Jesus says that's exactly what you are. If you want to be greatest in my kingdom, you've got to be least now. And I'm going to be honest with y'all, this is not a comfortable truth. This doesn't seem to, to be the thing that we're called. We want to change the world. We want to do big and grand things for the Lord. Okay, amen. Praise God. But how is God going to do great things through you? By you not thinking of yourself as great. By you thinking of yourself as servant and least of all. The method that God chooses for greatness is humility. Service. And for some of you, this is easy because the world treats you like that. The world treats you as the help because maybe you are. The world treats you as the outcast because maybe you are. And so for some of us, this is an easy truth because this is really our life. For others, every room you walk into, you're celebrated. You're the boss. You're the manager. You're the owner. You're the smartest. You're the richest. You're the whatever it is. And for some of us, you're going to have to work at this. You're going to have to shut off the voices of the cheers of men in your ears and hear the word of God. For some of us, we're going to have to take intentional steps to make sure we have set ourselves up not to be the most important but the least important because the world is not going to do it for us. And so wherever you are on the spectrum, whether you are celebrated in every room or you are the outcast that this passage is talking about, we must find ways to be obedient to the call of God to become servants. And I hear what you're saying, man, I, I, if, I, if I become the least of all, if I'm not the most important room, they're not going to listen to me. If I, don't, if I don't exert my authority, they're not going to do what I tell them to do. My business is going to suffer. My job is going to suffer. My department is going to suffer. Well, here's the truth. Either God's word is true or it's not. Either you will follow him or you won't. If the business fails and you lose your job, but you stand in front of the king, and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Won't that be enough? No? <laughs> no. no. I want that and the stuff, right? <laughs> I'm not saying you have to always choose. God's methods tend to work out better than ours, amen? I'm not saying that your business has to suffer, that your department has to suffer, that your family has to suffer. Oftentimes, being obedient to the call and commands of God actually makes those things flourish. Actually makes those things rise in ways that we couldn't even imagine. But even if it doesn't, remember, Jesus is more than our Savior. And his commands are not suggestions and they're not optional. They're commands because he's king. And so even if it does not work out, even if people treat you like a servant, even if their claim doesn't come, even if the success doesn't follow, even if none of that stuff happens, will you still do what God told you to do? Will you still make yourself servant of all? That's God's method. Now, Jesus is going to take it one step further beyond just this is how I want it done. He's going to talk about the dangers of disobedience, the dangers 
of disobedience. Because here's the problem. This is good for others and hard for us to do. We're thinking about 10 people right now who, if they were here this Sunday, man, they should be hearing this. I, I was just talking about them this, this the other day. Well, amen, they're not here. You are. God has something for you. But look at what, how the disciples respond. So John, now it's usually Peter who's pitching up in the last second. Usually when the, 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 the gets a little awkward or someone should not say something, Peter's the one who says something. But you, now, for the first time, it's John. In verse 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. Now, what does this have to do with what I just said? John is shifting, shifting focus here. Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Now, I want you to pay attention to the pronouns in this, in this passage. We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who cannot soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ. Truly, I tell you, he will never lose his reward. Now, in some of your Bibles, there's another heading underneath this to separate this verse from the next one. I'm actually going to connect them, but I'm going to pause right here for just a second so we know what was happening. This is all one thought. So John tries to, there's, an, there's probably a, an awkward silence in this moment, right? Because they were talking about who's the greatest. Jesus is going to redefine greatness as those who are like little children, those who are humble, who are servants of all, those who welcome the weak and the vulnerable in, in Jesus' name. So there's probably an awkward silence in this moment. So John breaks that silence and says, well, oh, on another note, Jesus, there's another guy casting out a demon. Like, look at the good thing we did, y'all. Look at the good thing we did, Jesus. I, I, know, we're, I know we messed up on the greatest thing, but look at this good thing we did. Someone was trying to cast out a demon in your name, but we stopped him. Waiting for the pat on the back, right? What does Jesus say? He's like, well, why, why would you stop them? Anyone who does miracles in my name will not soon after speak evil of me. If they're not against us, they are for us. Now, we have to get this truth in order for us to get the implications of this command. What is Jesus doing right now? Once again, those who be servants of all, least in the kingdom... There's a, there's, a, there's a sense in which our tribe is really the best tribe, if we're honest. In theological circles, there are reformed and unreformed circles. There is charismatic and non-charismatic. There's the 9 o'clock service folks and the 11 o'clock service folks, and they're not the same people, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about now. Don't look at me like you go to 9 o'clock on purpose because you don't want to be around the 11 o'clock people. And 11 o'clock people don't want to be around the 9 o'clock people. So even in church, we find ways to separate even into tribes, into cliques. And whenever someone outside of our tribe does something, it's automatically suspicious. Whenever someone inside our tribe does something, it's automatically praiseworthy. But God is saying, no, your tribe, who be- they're not with us, doesn't matter. They are with me. And either you are on my team or you are not. I'm not on your team. So your tribe doesn't represent Jesus. Jesus represents Jesus. Your job is to take your community and make it look like Jesus as much as possible. And anytime we bear to the left or to the right, no matter whose name is on it, it's wrong. And anytime it speaks truth, it's right. Some of us can't even hear truth from preachers. That we, You scroll in on Facebook one day and somebody has a, has a, you know, a sermon clip of a, of a preacher. And we have an instant reaction to that preacher, whether we've heard what they said or not. 
Oh, that's a prosperity gospel preacher. They can't be right. Oh, that's John MacArthur. Oh, he's, he's off. Without even listening to what they've said, we discard what could be truth. Jesus is saying, watch what they do. Sound familiar to anybody? You can tell a tree by its, by its fruit. Judge the messenger by the message, not by the tribe, is what Jesus is saying. And we could all take a dose of humility when somebody, we're not just the Twitter police, y'all. We're not just here to say, oh, that's not right because it's not coming from the right person. Or that's got to be wrong because it doesn't come in the right way and the right packaging that I would like it. No, verify truth by truth, not by association to your tribe because Jesus is not on your team. Jesus isn't on my team. Either we are on his or we are lost. And so that's why Jesus says, don't stop him because no one who performs a miracle in my name will speak evil of me. For whoever is not against me is for us. So even if it's not all the way right, they are trending towards obedience if they are doing works in my name. And let's be gracious with each other. Once again, servant of all. So Jesus lands the plane in these last few verses. I'm going to read this whole passage, and then we'll end here. Verse 42 through 50. But whoever causes one of these little ones who would believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. So let me just ask the question that some of you may be thinking. What is Jesus talking about? A whole lot of gouging, a whole lot of salt. I feel like there's something there, but it doesn't seem really clear. Let me, let me, let me, let me unpack this for us, because Jesus is saying something profound here. But we might miss it because this isn't our culture. The Bible wasn't written in English. It wasn't really written directly to us, humanly speaking. And so there's some cultural and language gaps that we have to cross in order to understand what Jesus is saying. In the Old Testament, when you offered animal sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins or for, for guilt or for sin offerings, when you offered animal sacrifices, oftentimes we forget that when the sacrifices were put on the altar and presented to God, the Levites were commanded to put salt on the sacrifices. Leviticus 2.13 is the command. It says, you are to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit from your grain offerings the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. Now, the question is why? Why are we going to sprinkle salt on this meat that's being offered to God? Well, see, salt was a metaphor. It was a symbol of two things, purity and perseverance. Salt symbolizes purity or holiness or perseverance or the eternal nature of our covenant. Let me, let me back it up in Scripture. Numbers 18, 19. It'll be on the screen. It says, I give to you, to your sons and daughters, all the holy contributions that the Israelites present to the Lord as a permanent statue. It is a permanent covenant of salt before the Lord for you as well as your offspring. Once again, this covenant of salt. It is a holy and eternal covenant. It is a pure and persevering covenant. So salt symbolizes purity and perseverance. 
So now God calls us to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. That's implied in this passage. The cutting off of your limbs that cause us to sin, the gouging out of your eyes. We've already heard in Mark, in Mark chapter 7 earlier that it's the sin within us that causes us to do the wrong thing. So it's not our actual limbs that Jesus is talking about getting rid of. It's talking about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, willing to sacrifice any part of our lives that displeases God. Romans 12, 1 makes this clear. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So make, see the connection right here. The sacrifices of the Old Testament were, meat of, were, the, were animals presented, and they were sprinkled with salt to make them pure and holy to symbolize the eternal covenant of God. Now we are the living sacrifice. We got that so far, right? We present our bodies now as a living sacrifice offered not just once a year or once a quarter, once a month or once in a season, but offered daily to God so that we can walk in obedience to his statutes. So we are the sacrifice. So how are we made pure? Well, first and foremost, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but also through suffering. Also through suffering. Read again the last two verses, 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Stop there for a second. Everyone will be salted with fire. He is using this idea of salt as a verb, almost telling us that the way we are going to be purified and preserved is through the fire of suffering. In the Old Testament, it was salt sprinkled on animals. Now it's suffering in our own lives being offered to God. We live in a broken world, and to live righteously in a broken world means that we live dangerously, y'all. Because the Word of God tells us that those who slap us on one cheek, we should turn the other. We live in a world that loves slapping people. So to live righteously means we're going to put ourselves in harm's way. The world tells us that how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times, 77, right? We live in a world that loves to take advantage of your forgiveness. We live in a world that is going to take advantage of our willingness to be righteous. And so along the way, in order to follow God, we will follow him with a cross on our backs. And there will be suffering, y'all. And the goal is not to diminish the commands of God to make our suffering go away. The goal is to hold on to the God who gives the command that even in the midst of our suffering, we remember who and why we are serving. And so that is why we will be salted with fire. But here, the danger. Verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. It's saying for us to not forget our first love, y'all. Now we buy table salt, and salt is relatively cheap, and it lasts forever, it seems like. But back in the day, there was, salt was expensive, and it had impurities, and so it was mixed with various other minerals, and so salt would eventually lose its saltiness if not preserved well. And so the fear is that if we don't preserve ourselves, if we don't walk according to the commands of God, that eventually we will lose our saltiness. We will lose our impact in the world. We will lose our holiness. We will lose our Christian distinctiveness. I've said this before at Radiant Church, and I find it to be increasingly true. I think the greatest challenge and the biggest problem we face in the American church is is our lack of holiness. 
we just look so much like the world. We like the same things that they like. We go to the same place they go. There, there seems to be a smaller and smaller gap between those who are following Jesus and just those who are good moral people. The atheists can do good things. The backpack event that we're having, it's a way that we're going to serve the church, but what's going to make that a uniquely Christian event? Can't the Hindu temple, the mosque, the synagogue, can't the social club, can't the community center do a backpack drive? What's different when we do it? Hopefully the difference is you. Is that when moms and dads and children and boys and girls come to get their backpack, they're not just greeted by a nice person. They're greeted by someone who has been walking with Jesus, who has the aroma of the Holy Spirit. And their kindness and their gratitude and our displays of affection is going to carry more than just nice people. But man, they are, there's something different about those folks. You see, it's not just service that God has in view by making us the least. It's not just our Christian compassion. It's not just doing good things. It's doing things in such a way that points to Jesus. And so by us making ourselves small, we don't just glamour kind of a, a, a false humility celebration on ourselves that look how lowly we are, look how humble we are. No, we say, look how great our God is. That what other posture would I have in life other than a bent knee and a bowed head? Look how great my God is that even though you are a terrible person, I love you. Even though you take advantage of my kindness, I love you. Even though you're going to hurt me, I love you. Why? Because not because of you, but because who made you. That's what makes us distinct. That's what makes us salt and light. And like all the truths and commands of Scripture, y'all, we don't have to do this alone. Hebrews 2.10, the last verse, and then I'll close. It says, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Jesus was made perfect through his sufferings. And so when God calls us to be salted with fire, to endure suffering, he's not saying, y'all go do that. He's saying, no, I've done it, come to me. I've suffered so that you never suffer alone. I've gone before you so that I'm always with you. And so again, Jesus becomes not just our Savior, but our example, but our companion, even through suffering. Even though we may give up everything in this life to be obedient to the commands of God, we don't do it for Jesus. We do it with Jesus because he's with us. We do it with one another as well. So what's the path to greatness, church? The path to greatness is becoming servant of all. How do we change the world? It's not by pursuing great, big, grand things. It's by every single day laying your life down as a sacrifice to the Lord. Saying, okay, today, God, you can have my body. You can have my time. You can have my money. You can have my kids. You can have my family. You can have my job. You can have it all, God. And then next day, going to sleep, waking up and doing it again. And again and again until he comes back. And I promise you, when he does, whether we experience life and success in this world or not, it will be worth it. Because he is the aim of our salvation. Would you pray with me, please?